Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. You can find it on page 787 in your pew Bible. If you're visiting with us for the first time, new to us, we have been studying through these smaller books at the end of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. And we've been in the book of Habakkuk for a few weeks and remind you what that was about or what that book is about. Habakkuk is a unique prophet in that the whole book is his conversation with God, not the record of his preaching to his people, though it was obviously written down and even written down and put into their hymnals, the last portion of it that we'll study today. And Habakkuk is, uh, is complaining, crying out to God, saying this, this world is unsafe, and when are you going to bring justice to it? And also, when are you going to bring repentance to my people? And God said, uh, in effect, uh, you wouldn't understand, you wouldn't like the answer if I gave it to you. And Habakkuk keeps shining, and he says, I do want the answer, and God gave him the answer, and Habakkuk didn't like it. God said, I told you you wouldn't like it. God said... I am the God of justice and I will bring righteousness on the earth, including uh, taking care of those nations that are terrorist nations. And I will also bring repentance and discipline on your nation, on your people. You'll be in captivity for 70 years until I've brought you back into obedience. Habakkuk uh, is an intense book, this exchange between God and the prophet, but it's also intense in the dramatic change that occurs in Habakkuk by the end of the book. You never could have imagined it. You never could have written it yourself. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry in all of literature, these final verses that we'll read in a moment. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, one of the founders of our nation, when he was ambassador of France, his his enlightened French intellectual friends were making fun of him because he still read the Bible. He didn't. He wasn't a Christian. He made. He didn't make it a secret that uh, he was. uh, uh, Didn't think much of the gospel. But he was fascinated with the Bible. His friends made fun of him. How can you, being smart as you are, continue to believe in the Bible, continue to read the Bible? It's full of errors. It's old-fashioned. It's out of date. Finally, he had enough of it. One evening in a, in a social event, he, he said, you know, I've been reading some poetry today that I think you will appreciate. I'm just enraptured by this poetry. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. They said, where in the world did you get that poem? That's amazing from the Bible. Well, this morning, I want you not just to appreciate this poetry, 
but to realize that this is the truth of God. The truths of God, about God, of who God is that will enable you and me to live in the very disturbing times that we are in, just as they did Habakkuk. In a moment, we're going to pray for this, for God to enlighten us from this text. <clears throat> and, uh, and it's appropriate uh, before that prayer and, and before we study this text to, to, to highlight a, a bit of what uh, Damon prayed for in the Middle East conflict, I've been in communication with my friend Micah Greenstein here from Temple Israel and texting encouragement to him. And I asked him for permission to share with you the uh, a note he wrote to me just uh, last night. And uh, I think it's instructive for us for how to pray for this conflict for all who are innocently being affected by this violence and to know how to pray this. I mean, we're putting feet on our faith and practicing just what Habakkuk has been teaching us because Habakkuk was praying against a terrorist nation. God was also saying, you as the people of God must repent. Uh, My friend said, I appreciate your prayer so much The worldwide protests have chants which translate death to the Jews, not just death to Israel. I am pro-Palestinian people, not pro-death to Israel and Jews. The ongoing nightmare for my Israeli friends with missing relatives at last night's Sabbath tables and dying Palestinians because of Hamas is distressing. I let it out in my sermon last night. He said, thanks to you and your congregation for reaching out in prayers. He just reminded us of a few principles that we know from our faith in times like this. That we must pray against terror of all forms. And we must pray for peace. And we must pray for the protection of innocent lives And then we must hold accountable all leaders for their conduct of war. The concept of just war comes from the Christian theologian Augustine. And so as we listen, as we pray over the next months or we pray not years of this conflict in the Middle East and all around the globe, let us remember these things from God's word and how to pray for justice and peace for the vulnerable, for those who have been offended against. With that, and having read the text, let me pray for God to enlighten us in our study of God's word this morning. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to study your word in a way that transforms our minds and our beings and, and uh, instructs and empowers what we will do as a result. We do pray, Lord, that you would uh, conquer our unbelief with the truth of who you are so that we might speak and live truth 
even when life is very disappointing, when it's even tragic, when our faith is, 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 uh, is shattered, when our faith is challenged, O oh Lord, may our faith be strong and joyful in the Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. God's people said, amen. <clears throat> On my bookshelf are a, collect, a collection of books that I call my desert island books. If I were to be stranded on a desert island, I would hope to have at least these books with me. And I keep them in one place just because I like looking at them. They bring good memories and remind me of important truths I've studied. But also in case there is a fire, there's only one shelf of books that I'm going to take with me. Just a half a shelf anyway. Maybe a Cardinals baseball that I have to. It's nearby as well. And in one of those books, one of those books is called A Bunch of Everlastings. It's a collection of sermons by a man named Frank Borum. He was a preacher. It's a horrible name for a preacher, Borum. But that was his name, Frank Borum. He was the Spurgeon of New Zealand and Australia. He wrote a series, not just in that book, A Bunch of Everlastings, but a whole series of books on, on texts famous texts, beloved texts of Scripture that are illustrated by uh, important and famous people of history. But there's one exception. There's a, there's a, the, the passage that we have in front of us from Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19, is illustrated by a man named Walter Petherick. Nobody's ever heard of Walter Petherick. Walter Petherick is only remembered for two things. For his, his, um, his commitment to this passage and that he lived through two of the great tragedies of England's history. The Great Plague, 1660, and the Great, great Plague of 1665, and the Great London Fire, 1666. Walter Petherick uh, records in his journal that his wife, young wife, had been taken from him by the plague. He was left with four children, four small children. And as the plague was sweeping through London, a red cross would be put on the door of every family that lost a, a family member to that plague. And, and uh, Day by day, those crosses were multiplying. Businesses were shuttered. No one was in the streets. A Petherick, a Christian, decided on a Sunday morning, all the churches stayed open, by the way. Most Christians stayed in the city, regardless of the plague. Petherick had decided he should take his children to church they made their way down the, the street, and as they would pass every street and alleyway, they noticed red cross after red cross. They made their way into the church, and the preacher preached, of all things, on this passage from Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no, no fruit on the vine, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, my Savior, my stronghold. 
He went home that afternoon and that evening. He thought about the sermon all day long. And that evening as he was putting his, put his children to bed, he knelt by each one and prayed for God to protect them. And, and then as he came back to his own bedroom, anxiety came over him. What if God takes, what if one of my children dies? I can't bear to lose anymore. He cried out to the Lord, please spare my children. A very appropriate prayer. But he also realized as he was thinking at the, on the sermon that morning, how different, how, how much his own prayers had changed through the years. That when he first prayed, when he, when he, when he and his wife were first married and they had nothing, he said, we prayed, Lord, we, we give our lives for you. We'll do whatever you call us to do. Use whatever we have. Take whatever we have. We will sacrifice everything for the, for the on the forward movement of your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for what you've done for us. No sacrifice is too great. Then he said as, as life went on, as he had more things, as he enjoyed more uh, as he enjoyed the, the, uh, having children and a family, he said his, his prayers, his prayers were transformed from prayers of surrender and sacrifice to his prayers of self-preservation. What has happened to me, he thought. What has happened that, I've, that my prayers are all about self-preservation, no more about sacrifice out of the confidence of God's sovereignty and his salvation. We'll come back to Petherick in a moment, but I want you to hear what he discovered and see how it organizes this text. Two attributes of God that are highlighted here that change the way we act and the way we think, the way we feel. That God is the God of our salvation and God is sovereign. God saves and God is sovereign. When you know he saves, you will be joyful. When you know he's sovereign, you'll be courageous. Well, look at how the passage unfolds. It's a, it's a long introduction to those two very basic attributes of God. He first has a, a litany of these blessings, these material blessings that God has given in his providence to him, Habakkuk that is, and to his people. And he says, even though, even though, even though each one is conditioned, even though this happens, even though that happens, then the conclusion is I will rejoice, I will be strong. Well, even though what happens? What is the significance of these uh, these material blessings that are mentioned. You notice they're in ascending order of importance to life. It begins with the fig. We know from our friend Amos that, uh, who was the, the fig tree uh, 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 farmer, that figs are not essential, among other things he farmed, but the, but the, the fig is not essential to life. The fig is, is a, was regarded as a delicacy. It was something that would sweeten your meal experience, but you couldn't live on them exclusively, and, uh, and uh, you could live without them. 
And though there are no fruit, there's no fruit on the vine from which wine is made. Wine is important in the Middle East, especially with scarcity of water. But you could live without wine. You, you can't live without water. You could live without wine. But wine was something that was more important than figs to, to the Middle Eastern lifestyle. Though there are no crops in the field, though the olive crop, uh, olive crop fails, the, olive, the olives are, were very important. That was their fuel, fuel for cooking, fuel for heating, fuel for light, as well as uh, something necessary for cooking. That's more serious. And then, and though the, though the, the fields are, 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 produce no food, that's very serious. It's, now we're in potential famine. Though there are no sheep in the, in the pens. Well, sheep was their primary meat. That was also necessary for their worship. No cattle in the stalls. They didn't eat much beef, but they used that also in worship. And that was their, that was their tractor. That's what they needed for plowing their fields and, and crushing the olives. And it was their machinery necessary for carrying on their way of life. Well, you can appreciate that for them, but let me see if I can make it a little more contemporary for us. What if we were to pray something like this? Though I lose my favorite piece of jewelry. Though I, can't, I can no longer eat that food that I really like because of a dietary restriction. Though my electricity is cut off. Though there's an economic downturn. Though there's persecution for being a Christian. Though I lose my physical ability to work, though I die. Yet God the Lord is my strength. I'll rejoice in the Lord my Savior. How is that possible? And just what is he promising? When God says, I will be your salvation, what does salvation mean? You say, well, everybody understands that, but let's take, a whole, let's take the whole of Scripture and ask what, if we were to bundle all Scripture together, survey it completely, for what salvation means, we know very simply, because of the revelation of Christ, that, uh, that salvation means that, that we confess our sins and he removes our sins from us and he saves our souls for heaven. That's, that's, that is salvation. But he saves us from even more than that when we trust him. In fact, the Bible mentions 10 enemies from which he saves us uses this word, salvation. Salvation we could define like this. This is God delivering you from his enemies through Jesus in a way that glorifies him. It is God delivering you and me who trust him from all our enemies, not just our sin enemy, but all the effects of sin from all of his and our enemies through Jesus in a way that glorifies him. Here are 10 enemies mentioned in the Bible. We won't learn, turn to each of these. I'll give you proof text. You can look at them in turn. He delivers us, number one, from sin. Matthew 1, 21. 
He delivers us from insignificance. Matthew 16, verse 25. He delivers from physical danger. Hebrews chapter one, verse 14. He delivers from ultimate destruction, from hell. Job 19, verse 26. He delivers from permanent illness, from dying in an everlasting way. Luke 7, verse 50. He delivers us from human threat to God's plan. Psalm 18, verse 3. He delivers from God's wrath and judgment. Romans 5, 9. He delivers from hell, 1 Corinthians 3, 15. He delivers from religiosity and self-righteousness, 1 Corinthians 9, 22. And he delivers from disobedience, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 33. Well, now you say, I am so glad that he, I'm glad to know that God delivers me from those enemies. But, um, but uh, how am I going to be, how am I going to be sure that he delivers me from those enemies? I mean, I, I know on the one hand, he delivers me. And he, he makes that intellectual promise to me. But, but how am I going to become joyful? It's one thing to know it, but how am I going to, feel that joy. The Bible links together three words that explain that. It links together salvation and joy. In five places, it links together salvation and joy with love. God's love is the bridge. Knowing his love for us is what helps us understand with our minds that God delivers from our enemies and feel that he will do it and feel the courage as a result. Let me give you those passages of scripture. I'll just read them briefly to you. Verse, uh, Psalm 13, verse five, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Psalm 69, 13, I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Psalm 85, 7, Psalm 98, 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. Now, you know, I'm not in a, it's not our custom to give you a whole lot of proof text, but I know that this is, as your pastor, this is such a real struggle that I want to equip you with God's word so that you will know where to go when you are battling fear. And you need to get your eyes back on the God of salvation and so that he can restore your joy. Here are the places to go. The enemies, the assurance that, that love connects you to that joy. The knowing that not just that God defeats enemies, but God defeats enemies because he loves you. And he loved you so much he gave his only begotten son for you. I still haven't answered one question that you still have. You may not realize it yet, but you're going to have this question. How do I change my feelings? Pastor, you've told me two things to know. And we're good at that as Presbyterians. We're good at talking about what we know and building your mind and building up the, the intellect. 
We sometimes get squeamish when we talk about emotions. Emotions don't matter. Well, if you don't feel joy, there's nothing, there's no consequence to that. Well, that's not the way the Bible treats it. This is an emotion. When I realize that God is my salvation, I got happy. That's what Habakkuk says. I sang, I wrote a hymn. How do you change your emotions? You can't change your emotions. But the Spirit can. And so here's how God stitches all of that together with one dedicated person of the Trinity. God our Father protects us from our enemies. The Lord Jesus Christ is the proof of that love that bridges between our need for salvation from enemies and our, and, and, and our joy. It's the Holy Spirit who produces joy. The Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the Holy Spirit pours out love in our hearts. And then Paul says later in Romans chapter 8, you've not been given a spirit of fear leading to slavery again, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Those are feelings. The Holy Spirit creates feelings by taking what you know, what God has accomplished for you, and working it into your heart so that you feel it. Great saints throughout history, especially the Puritans, were fond of talking about this work of the Holy Spirit. They called it the sealing work of the Spirit. They said that, that, uh, that yes, you, you believe on Christ for your salvation. You, you intellectually assent to what he did for you. You ask him to save you from your sins. But you also are to be bold in asking the Father to send the Spirit of Jesus in order to you, for you to feel that that is true. That the Spirit would seal to your mind and your heart, I know that God loves me. I know that God is the God of my salvation. I know that God is the God of the salvation of all the earth, that someday he's going to put down all wickedness, he is going to lift up righteousness, and that once and for all, all evil is going to be defeated. So whatever is facing me momentarily at the moment that seems like the end of the world, I know from the Bible this is not the end of the world. God has the end of the world in his hands, and God is surely going to bring it to pass, and realizing that with the help of the Holy Spirit, you feel it. preached that truth for a very long time. There was a time I didn't preach that truth. There was a time people, especially right out of seminary when I knew everything, when I, when I really knew everything, there were the times people would sit in my, in my, in my uh, study and they'd say, you know, I'm, I know what's true. I'm just not feeling it. And I'd say, well, feelings aren't important. I even had a little chart. Here's the faith locomotive. Here's the faith locomotive. And it's pulling down the track, feelings. 
If the feelings don't follow, you're on the locomotive. Just stay on the fact. Just stay on the fact and faith locomotive. You can imagine what a wonderful pastor I was in those days. But then I discovered these truths from godly people bringing out God's word. And I urged people, pray. The, whole, the, 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 the Puritans would say, make bold to pray this prayer. Make a, make a promise to God. It'll make you more holy. Lord, if you can convince me that I am loved by you and you're going to be victorious all enemies, make me feel it in joy. Oh, Lord, I'll be just that much more effective for you. Remember a young woman many years ago who, after I had taught this, she said, you know, I've never been able to believe that God is my father. I mean, I know he's my father, but I had such a, I had such a bad earthly father. It's just that, that imagery has been lost on me, and I, there's just this catch in my relationship with God. And I, I said, let's pray together. Let's pray uh, uh, you, you pray every day and I'll pray in my private devotions as well that God would seal to you that the spirit would bear witness to your spirit that you're a daughter of God I remember three years later she came up and said he did it may take a while took a while for Habakkuk I don't imagine this happened within 30 minutes that he went from chapter one to chapter three. Pray that the Holy Spirit would bear witness with your spirit to convince you at a visceral level he is the God of your salvation and make you joyful. Well, secondly, the second point will not and cannot last as long as that one. The sovereign Lord produces strength. The sovereign Lord produces strength. Habakkuk uses a name for God here that is uh, very specific. Adonai Yahweh, sovereign Lord. And wherever we see that word, that, um, that name of God used, it's very specific to demonstrate his sovereignty over the things that scare us, the things that evoke fear in us. Now, it's a little bit redundant with those enemies that I've mentioned. Those enemies are surely things that provoke fear in you. But here, I want you to see in these five passages, I'll just list them for you, these five psalms. Here's where the psalm writer uses that name very particularly, Adonai Yahweh. To tell, to, the, to, to tell his people and for those people to sing to one another in worship. Remember, remember, whatever makes you afraid, God is sovereign. He is our sovereign God. Let it not intimidate us. So in Psalm 16, verses 2 and 10, he says, Though I go down to Sheol, I will not be afraid. Because Adonai, Yahweh, is my God. Even if the unthinkable happens, if I'm to die, my hand, my life is in God's hand, his sovereign hand. Psalm 68, verse 20, the fear of man. 
psalmist is talking about the, those who have plotted evil against him and, and uh, they're laying their traps and so forth. And uh, we, we know how other people can make us very, very afraid. But resting in the God Adonai Yahweh will give us power and strength. I remember reading uh, about uh, Fred Shuttlesworth, uh, Birmingham. We are in Birmingham quite a bit. This is my wife's hometown and my daughter lives there. And, and Shuttlesworth's name is a, is, a, is a frequently mentioned name around uh, Birmingham because he was a civil rights hero. Shuttlesworth was a pastor. And one time uh, the Ku Klux Klan uh, tried to blow up his house, tried to kill him and his whole family. He was in the back of the house. It didn't kill him. But uh, his church wasn't. His church showed up. And they surrounded the house and they're all praying and they're weeping. Oh, Pastor Shuttlesworth is going to be with the Lord. And you hear him yell out from under the, earth, under the, uh, under the rubble. It's cold down here. Is anybody going to help me? You're just going to keep praying. Oh, Pastor, Pastor Shuttlesworth, well, come on out. Well, the, the, the blast was so powerful, it blew all his clothes off too. He said, I'm not going to come out naked. You've got to give me something to wear. They gave him a coat. He put a trench coat on and he preached. It was in that same trench coat he was beaten. It was in that same trench coat he was wearing one day when they stood around and stopped his car and they're beating on it and they're saying, if you get out of that car, we're going to kill you. He got out of the car. He started walking. And he said, if you're going to kill me, you, you need to kill me. But for now, I'm not going to be late to my appointment. And he walked through them. How do you get that way? Living in confidence in Adonai Yahweh. The sovereign Lord is my strength. You can take my life away from me. You can't destroy me. Third is lost reputation. Psalm 109 verses 2 and 21. Injustice. Psalm 140 verses 7 and 8. Fear of the future. Psalm 141 verses 8 and 13. In that chapter that uh, Frank Borum writes about, about, um, about this passage, he mentions a member in his church. He said, who is one of those annoying kind of people, he was saying this tongue-in-cheek, one of those annoying kind of people who's joyful all the time. Jenny McNabb was her name. And he went to visit her, and she was, she was, uh, she was ill, but she, she was so joyful. And it just irked him a bit as her pastor. So he's going to test her a little bit. And he said, well, suppose this illness gets worse. And suppose this illness causes you to die. And then she said, oh, pastor, stop with your supposings. Next time a supposing comes to your door, you shut the door against it. You bolt the door against it. You leave it out there on the door stoop. Quit your supposing and put your hope in the sovereign Lord who is your strength. That's what Habakkuk's saying, suppose. Suppose anything you wish. Suppose any scenario, any enemy, any darkness, and we have faced some, haven't we? And yet God the Lord is our, has remained our strength. He remains our joy. He's given his Lord, he's given his son to 
prove his love to us. He's dedicated his Holy Spirit to us to enable us to overcome, to seal to our minds and hearts those truths. So we live it out in faith, faithful response to who God is. None of Petherick's children died, Walter Petherick. But one day as he was sitting at his breakfast table, his little son Henry said, Papa, look, Papa, look, the fire is coming. And the great London fire was sweeping toward his house. He could see it burn up his businesses and see it burn up his city. And at first he said, I was just like Habakkuk in the early chapters. How could you let this happen? And he prayed for God to protect. Then he said a peace that passed all comprehension enabled him to feel a joy that was deeper than any loss and enabled him with strength to tell his children, God will save and God will provide. He's proved it in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this pastor also has to say, I believe, but help my unbelief. There are plenty of enemies out there, plenty of things that make me afraid too. And yet, O Lord, you have always shown yourself faithful to your people to enable them to have a joy that is deeper than all circumstances and a strength that amazes those who look on. So would you so enrapture us by your loving kindness that we as a congregation, that through us as a congregation, you would get a name for yourself and others would also flee to this one true saving and sovereign God. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.